Roger. Yeah, I think it's pulling the wrong one. I'm just... Okay, I'm ready to pull it down now. There was still a little bit uh, left in the... Okay, don't hold it quite so tight. Okay. Uh -oh. Stand what? Stand what? Hi. Welcome to the podcast. This is how it's gonna start. Microphone check, 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 Are we good? We're good. We're rolling. How do you sound? Can you hear yourself okay? I hear fine. Yeah. Okay. Actually, I don't hear you, though. You don't. Oh, wait. I guess I do. Yeah, I just have to turn mine up a little bit. What do you think? <clears throat> How's that? Better? Yeah, that's perfect there. Good. Yeah, you sound Alrighty. good. All right. Go for it. Okay. <clears throat> I think like, this is one, two. This is me, right? I'm two. Two. No, that's you, right? Yeah. Okay. Is that too loud? There we go. Good? Yeah. Bueno. Uh, hearing you fine. <clears throat> Welcome to Live to Tape, Greg. Thanks. Thank you for being here. Nice to be here. I'm excited. excited. Yeah. yeah, I want to do this for a long time. There's always stuff I want to ask you about, and it's now <laughs> it's like it's a, an excuse to do it and record it, basically. Yeah. Cause so I first met you when I was probably a little, little kid at the Quarry Hill Nature Center in Rochester, Minnesota. Like all kinds of kids that came through Rochester, yeah. Minnesota. Exactly, yeah. And yeah. as I got older, I remember thinking about how... Um, Basically, just how uh, much I love that place, and how like how much it informed so much of the the way I look at the world was being able to experience that as a little kid. Actually, I was telling Britt just just yesterday, maybe or two days ago, she saw something on the ground. I think she knew it was a uh, she she learned about owl pellets. Oh sure, yeah. yeah. And I remember one of the one of the first experiences I had there. I think it was maybe Boy Scouts or something. We went to. The nature center, and we dissected those owl pellets. Right, pulled out the bones out yeah. of there and looked at the little chart to see what kind of animal the the owl had eaten and all right. that stuff. Oh yeah. yeah. And I was so obsessed with. It. I was trying to. I asked the. I don't know who it was at the time, who was who was teaching us that. But I was. Um, I remember asking them, "Is there a way to get these to get more of these?" Because uh, I wanted to like take them home and do it at home. So there's some sort of scientific place online you can order them yeah, from. Yeah, you can actually get them, and uh, people do that sometimes. Really? And uh, uh, one thing that happened after they we started doing that is it got a little. It was becoming more popular, well, and they doing they, the they, they yeah doing the pellets, and they started uh, <clears throat> making sure that they got microwaved before they sold them to oh, make really? sure they weren't transmitting any kind of diseases with these animals that okay. the owls might have eaten. So, yeah. Yeah, so... Because they do eat lots of rodents and stuff. So oh, yeah, be... yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, mostly rodents. So, yeah, that's, that's what you see. Yeah, yeah, the pellets are cool. I remember asking the guy who was teaching us if they could be used as a weapon, like if the owl would ever shoot out the pellet. And he's like, no, I don't think that's the case. I have never actually never had someone ask that before. I'll, I'll bet that was Kirk Payne. Kirk, or Kirk, Kirk Payne or Kirk Mead? Well, Kurt would have been Kurt right? Mead. If he had red hair, it would be Kurt Mead. If he had dark hair, it would be Kurt Crane. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. I remember Kurt, Kurt 
Mead was the red-haired guy. Yep, exactly. And he yeah. works at the Raptor Center now, is that right? Or he uh, he's, to... he's actually up on the North Shore, above, okay. du- above Duluth. He works at uh, Temperance uh, uh, River State Park, and he's a naturalist there, so he's got a neat uh, neat gig up there. So, yeah, yeah. he was a great guy. To he was run. really great. He yeah. was one of those guys who was very, um, looking back on it, he was very accommodating of a lot of different types of kids who were very opinionated about stuff. He was so good at kind of like... Uh, well, he he could perceive, you know, what, what kids really were, were into yeah. and what they needed and, uh, you know, was able to deliver. Yeah, he was great. And he, he and, I hired both he and his wife at right. the same time because uh, they came kind of as a... Actually, I was hiring her for a job and then uh, uh, I said, well, I, I could use him also. So we, we put him to work. Yeah, they had a kid named Yarrow, I think. I remember that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yarrow and Lily. Okay. Yeah, and they're, of course, they're, uh, they're, I think they're at least in college, if not past that. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't seem that long ago, but I guess it, it was quite a long time yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah they, they, uh, they lived in a little house down in Spring Valley when they were working at Quarry right. Hill. And I remember we had, a, I think we had a Christmas party at their house one time. It was kind of fun going down there. And, you know, they have all kinds of weird hippie stuff? Uh, not too weird, but I remember they love, Kirk loved to cook with garlic. You go in the house and it's just, <laughs> it just, you know, and, and I'd never been a real big garlic fan. Right. Although I like garlic more and more every year. But, He's a uh, big garlic guy. So they, they cooked with a lot, a lot of garlic. So, yeah. So how did you get involved with the Nature Center? Because you started really early on, right? Well, the the original director was there was there for thirteen years before me. Who was that? Uh, Harry Buck. Okay, and uh, he you started know, he, it. Uh, yeah, he essentially started because he would teach uh, classes at Quarry Hill, which was a city park. Uh, the city bought it from the state because the state uh, had all the property from the former state hospital, and so okay. they sold some of the vocational school and the college, and then the city bought this two hundred twelve acre park, and it sat for a while. That was about in nineteen sixty five or so. And I can remember going out there snowmobiling. My girlfriend in, in high school, they had a snowmobile, and we went out and snowmobiled around the park. What year is this? Because there weren't any buildings there yet. But Harry would come out because summer school, these science teachers, which Harry was in the district, could teach classes uh, during <laughs> the summer because they had a 10-month contract instead of nine, so they could have a, an extra month to do classes for kids. Oh, cool. And so they would teach middle school kids or junior high then. It was called out at uh, the Nature Center. And he would literally just bring... Uh, his pickup truck with all kinds of stuff and take kids hiking in the woods and all that and so on. So he he's the one that got it started. They built a building three or four years later after that, got a lot of donations. What year was this? <laughs> well, it opened, up, it, it opened up in 72. Okay. And, uh, uh, and then so he was there, you know, for like 13 years or so. And then uh, I was teaching uh, outdoor uh, classes in the high school. I was teaching sportsman's biology, environmental awareness, mm-hmm. and... Uh, and I actually was heavily involved in athletics too, because I. You say this co- is all in Rochester, Minnesota. Yeah, all, where I grew yeah, up. all right, yeah. right where yeah, right where we were all from. And uh, so I was coaching some football. I was coaching some basketball. They asked me to coach tennis because they didn't have a tennis coach, and and I was assistant athletic director. And then in in one year, both Harry, uh, who was at the uh, Nature Center, mm-hmm. and then Kerwin Engelhart, who was the head of all athletics in the district, retired, and I. I, I thought, well, I, I should probably follow uh, and try to apply for that job as the head athletic director in the district because I'd been doing a lot of athletic stuff. But then when I saw the Nature Center job was open, I thought that would be re- really cool to do too. So, uh, What made you think? Cause it, were you a naturalist at that point? or what? Well, I was what teaching was a lot of environmental outdoor classes at, at the high school. So okay. it, it, was, it was kind of a natural move. And, and actually, I went to... Kerwin, the guy who was the athletic director, who was also my high school basketball coach, and I, I said, what do you think, Kerwin? And he knew I had, you know, had little kids at home, and he says, Greg, 
I'd go for the other one. He said, you get involved with athletics, you'll never see your kids. You okay. know, and it was one of the greatest pieces of advice I ever got because yeah. then, because uh, my kids got involved at Quarry Hill for many, many years, and uh, you know, and you see, you know, you said that you, you know, you you learned some things when you were there, and that's one of the neat things about Quarry Hill. But it's also one of the downsides to teaching, because oftentimes people take away things that they may not, it may not do much for them right at that moment, or maybe a year yeah. or two or three years later, maybe five years down the line, it kind of helps lead them into something that's much more valuable to their whole, their whole life. And right. Uh, so one of the, one of the downsides in teaching, we always don't, we don't always know if we're making any impact. That's why one of my favorite lines I use is I like, I like to shovel snow. I like to mow the lawn and I like to do dishes. Cause when I'm done, I can see what I've done. <laughs> okay. Whereas in teaching your whole life, you just don't know if you've had any impact on the yeah. kids or the students, the adults, whatever they might be uh, that you're teaching. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because this, I remember just about everything I ever learned there and all of the stuff was so, I don't know, there's something about it. Even just the dumb stuff like making the uh, the test tube sand, the sand sculptures. Paintings. Yeah, I yeah. love that. But yeah. the stuff that really got me that I think about now, I guess I didn't realize it, how impactful it was because... I feel like I have a relationship with nature where I don't, I don't keep it at arm's length. And I'm not scared of, uh, I'm not scared of nature, because it's like I'm finding very interesting. There's a lot of people you meet who are very standoffish oh, yeah. about oh, stuff, yeah. yeah. And it's yeah. like you shouldn't be scared of this stuff because it's this, it's all around us. There's no reason to be to be frightened right. about these things that are exactly. Yeah. And it's I think learning getting like. Um, watch like a snake eat a rat. Like we make those big circles uh -huh. and we watch the snake, snake eating eat, a rat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. and I was so into yeah. snakes because of that. And that stuff, there's stuff that traditionally we'd be scared of that I became just so interested in. And I feel like if you're really interested in something, you can't be scared of it because and, you're... Well, if you, yeah, if you understand it, you know, you just got to yeah. understand it. But, but you're right. The majority of people probably do not. And of course, that's always been uh, tops on my list is to just try to get people to experience the natural world so that they if they experience it they're more than likely going to eventually appreciate it and that means they're more than likely going to eventually vote or, or yeah, spend, spend money to take care of it to protect yeah. it exactly so uh, you know and and of course I'm retired now but I I still have that kind of same philosophy in in writing a column on a weekly column that's mm -hmm. just called nature nut because I hope I can I can tweak people's interest and and write on something they say oh i didn't think about that that's pretty neat let's go see that or let's let's do that or let's not be so afraid of doing that you know yeah yeah was the stuff uh when you started taking when you took over for as the director of the nature center was that something where it was kind of a little bit daunting because it was a new thing so daunting to, yeah okay here i am i've been teaching high school for 13 years right. okay 14, 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old kids. And the next month, I'm going to take, it was, it was actually February, I was or March. I got hired in February. Harry was getting knee surgery, so he was leaving. So I was going to start classes in March right after spring break. And my classes were predominantly going to be all elementary students. Mm -hmm. So I had to go in there during spring break because they weren't typically open to the public during breaks or even weekends and that, and try to figure out what am I going to do when all these thousands of of elementary kids show up and i mean it was it was totally new to me you know because wow. i hadn't, hadn't dealt with that but yeah, it, it, was, it was exciting it was fun yeah, yeah. so because i mean i have there's a lot of this stuff is edge of my memory but i remember i guess i mean what, what's the kind of stuff you would you would teach kids like that like, how does it work like, what's the like 
Because it's like mostly day camps kind of thing, right? They come well, for well, the a kid, day. Well, the, well, during the school year, we would have classes of students come out typically for an hour and a half class period. Mm-hmm. And they would. Uh, we had a curriculum for kindergarten. I remember the kindergarten, uh, we taught uh, uh, about honeybees. Okay. And we also taught... So there's a uh, hive out there. Right, right. Was yeah. it always been a hive out there? <laughs> no. I, 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 so there's a story behind... We, we had an observation hive, which yeah. you remember. Oh, it was, it was the coolest thing. I, well, you know, where, you know where Viola is outside of Rochester. I don't think it's that a city. Look, it's a little tiny town. They have the Viola Gopher Count every year, which your I don't know your, about your this. Mother, your mother dislikes because okay. they, they they have all the farmers and all the kids bring in oh, their, kill the feed from the gophers that they've trapped because oh, yeah. the farmers don't like them in their fields. Well, anyway, yeah. you drive through Viola and there's an old creamery in there. It's a neat brick creamery. And one time I drove through there, and I thought I saw all these beehives outside. You know, so I knew there was somebody in there that was doing a lot with bees. So I stopped. It was a guy by the name of Bob Applin. And he let me go inside, and inside this old brick creamery, he had a table, probably, oh, maybe five or six feet square, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it had a plastic dome on it. And then it had a tube leading out of the dome outside. Oh, yeah. And, and, and you could <clears throat> see the bees just running out of this plastic dome, going outside and coming in and going out, and they had all kinds of comb hanging inside this dome, and you could see it all. I mean, it was right oh, there, yeah. and I thought, man, that is cool. And so I said, I got to do something like that for the nature center. So I started thinking about what to do. Well, I got, I know I didn't get online because I wasn't online then, but somehow, <laughs> somehow I found a guy who made those, but he lived in Chicago. And he was going to make a nice one out of walnut with, and it's probably the one that you remember seeing yeah. with, with glass panels, you know, that you could see the bees in there working. So he and I, he said he'll make it. We agreed on a price and, and he said, well, let's do this. He said, I can't ship it. Why don't we meet in... Uh, like Appleton? Well, we were going to meet in Tomo, Wisconsin, okay? And uh, unbeknownst to me, I told him, I said, well, let's meet uh, right right where uh, 90 and 94 meet. But we were coming from different directions, and you can circle around Tomo. So we both came from different directions. We weren't in the right place, and we both ended up circling around town, him and his Cadillac, mine and my old truck. And we never ran into each other. So he went back home. I went back home. But fortunately, my parents were going to visit my brother in Michigan later on. And they uh, they said, well, we'll stop in Chicago and pick it up on the way. And they did. And they came back and everything you installed out. it. But yeah, so it was really, yeah. And that, that was a great, uh, and now they have an even bigger edition. Really? They, uh, the new edition they did last year. So yeah. there's a third edition now, because that's the third edition, isn't it? Well, I, I had two editions done when I was there. And this oh. third one actually it was not an addition to the main building. It was just remodeling it, and they put in this neat beehive yeah. exhibit. But then they built a whole new satellite building about a quarter mile away from the original okay. nature center that they do a lot of classes and programs at. So, it's almost yeah. like a Bass Pro Shops now, but without the <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> right, equipment. exactly, yeah. So, it, yeah, no, the beehive was a, was a great one. But although every year we would have to order bees... The queen, right? Uh, right, queen. and we'd have to get a queen, and I always tried to get the queen somehow marked. So yeah, that have like a little could, white dot yeah, on it. Yeah, put a white back. dot on it, and and that's not easy uh, really? to, to first to find the queen and then to get her and then to hold her to put this dot on. We'd use uh, we'd use a little tiny uh, whiteout dot, mm-hmm. and uh, and that was always really tricky, but it was always fun. Because I remember when I used to order the bees, I'd order them, and uh, uh, they would come to the uh, post office. From from uh, like, Sears, you could order them from Sears. They come to the post office. They'd be in a box about you know a foot by six yeah. inches by by three inches, 
be filled with bees, and the post office would always call and say, come on, get, get these bees. Here. Because when the beekeepers that were sending them would send them, there might be 100 bees on the outside of the box, too. Are you serious? Yeah. What do you mean? They, and they just send them. And so here, here they're sitting in the post office, and they have, they have them on a dock. They said, it's outside. We're not taking them inside. And they'd, uh, they'd come and... Uh, They'd, they'd come and I'd take the bees out there. and uh, That yeah, sounds like yeah. there's this prank call group I like called Longmont Potion Castle. Yeah. They'd always prank phone calls where they pretend to be UPS drivers who were shipping something like, I've got your uh, I got your box of live millipedes. <laughs> the person's like, I didn't order that. It's like, well, yeah, you did, sir. I just should drop it off because one of my guys just got bit. Yeah. That's like a joke. <laughs> You're talking about like the real thing. Yeah. It's so funny. Yeah, it was, you know, yeah, they, it was, yeah, they'd sit right out of the dock there, and, you know, God. you'd have to, uh, and, of course, for the most part, those bees are all pretty harmless. They're yeah, not they're all bother drones, you too much, right? You know, they're, sort of... you know they're, just, they're just there, and, uh, and they typically aren't going to bother you. Although, it, talking about bees, I used to raise, uh, have beehives at our, our house when we first got married, and, and the bees had a, had a, I kept telling my wife they're perfectly harmless, yeah. but when I was gone, if she went out, they would go after her. Why they do you would think chase that her. is? I have no idea, you know. And uh, it's so, weird because yeah. bees are. Yeah. Not, I mean, they're intelligent, but they're not. Yeah. That well, I did learn that that it's there almost all the time. I could open up a hive if it was sunny outside, right. and I could do whatever I wanted in there, and they wouldn't be bothered. If it was cloudy, they were PO'd. They didn't. Why like is that? It. I thought it was the opposite. No, it was, if it was cloudy, they just didn't That's like the, like fooling around. So uh, I learned I learned a lot about. And then my my yeah, this wasn't a honeybee, but my my weirdest bee experience. I used to have a motorcycle. I was driving down Highway 63 outside of Rochester once, coming back into town. It was summertime, and I don't know. I think I was playing with the air with my tongue or something. You know how you do that sometimes. Maybe I guess I've never ridden a motorcycle yeah. before. So, <laughs> and I got my mouth open. I got my tongue out, and a bee hits it and stings me. In the tongue? Uh, on the tongue. And didn't feel that good, but you know, I spit it out, and I'm going along, and I could feel it was starting to swell. So I stopped at that uh, uh, Sandy Point uh, restaurant, and I yeah. said, I need to get some ice water or something. The guy couldn't understand me. I couldn't talk. Your tongue's oh, pretty shit. important to talking. Yeah. And I, and, I, and I wasn't able to hardly say what I wanted, but uh, yeah. So bees are interesting. But it didn't, have, it didn't like uh, mess you up to the point where you like... No, no. It, 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 after a while, it was fine. But the interesting thing now, of course, from an educational standpoint, is people are finally learning how valuable bees are to us. Mm-hmm. All bees, not just honeybees. You know, there's... And one of the things I learned this last year when I did a couple of columns on on bees is that there are little tiny bees and you've probably seen some of them yeah you know they got little yellow bands and black bands and some of them are iridescent green there are more of those out there than there are all they're called solitary bees. yeah solitary bees we yeah. have uh we, have, we bought one of those little um a high not a high but it's like a place they can yeah they can crawl into yeah, and, and like, do their thing yeah it looks like a basically a pencil cup yeah but you mount it horizontal and then okay you put yeah. it on i think i yeah. put it on the back of our old house i don't think, I don't think it got sure. used at all but yeah yeah, so any, anyway, bees are cool, and, and the little solitary ones. And of course, this year I wanted to do a column on them, but getting pictures, because I always have to turn in pictures with my columns, mm-hmm. getting pictures of these little tiny bees to get a good focus on them. I've got a few. I think I'll be able to get one going next year. Did you year. take the pictures? Yeah. yeah How I, did you get them? Uh, I just walked around to the, the plants. I got a lot of butterfly and bee plants, uh, and I, my favorite bee plant now is, is zinnias. And the, and the zinnias, bee, really? Yeah, zinnias, okay. the bees love them. And so I would uh, go out and get pictures. But a lot of times, the camera just doesn't, you know, I'm not a great photographer, and I don't have really fancy equipment. It's but the shutter like, speed has to be super fast, Well, right? yeah, and, and, but I've got a few of them that came through pretty good. So I think next year I'll be doing a solitary bee column. Yeah. So back to the Nature Center, when yes. you guys got it started, 
and you were teaching all those classes and stuff. So, because you you know a lot about birds specifically, was that something you came into the when you started the nature center? You knew a lot about that, or is that something you learned I, along I wouldn't the way? Say, I wouldn't say so, and I would say probably my 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 interest in birds was because the former director had been a bird bander. Okay, uh, which meant he went out and, and captured birds uh, with either a net or traps, and then put little tags on their bands on their legs. Uh, I thought, well, that, you know, and he kind of implied that's kind of a neat thing to be able to do, although he really didn't have a class for it as such, but he uh, he liked to do a lot of it. So he stuck around uh, off and on for about a year and, and kind of mentored me on bird banding. And I and that allowed me to get my bird banding license. And then I actually developed a class in which we would let kids uh, catch birds in traps, and then we were able to put them in their hands and let them let them go yeah. after we banded so I did that. Them. I remember there, yeah, there was yeah. that net... <clears throat> Along right, in the exactly, woods there, yeah, yeah. and it was so you couldn't ever see it, but the birds yeah, would get caught in it. You take you know, them out, yeah, and you take the birds. And I've I've said for years, I don't think there's anything that that I've ever done in environmental or nature teaching that is more impactful for kids as well as adults uh, than having a bird in your hand and looking at it and letting it go. You yeah, know? I mean, and a lot of you know, I, I mean, a lot of kids grow up thinking, "God, I'd like to trap that bird or trap that squirrel somehow." Yeah. Well, here they got to trap a bird, you know, and uh, and so that's pretty. Uh, and of course, my my favorite now is that I, about fifteen uh, to twenty years ago, I got the idea I wanted to try to catch owls, and that's okay. been my favorite bird banding uh, uh, deal I've done over the last uh, those fifteen to twenty years. Is we we go out in the woods at night, we set up some nets at night, like mm -hmm. we set those up in the day at the nature center and uh and we play a we put a boom box out there and play a cd that plays the owl's call the it owl's it, call yeah well it, it, it's actually the owl we're trying to catch is an owl called a sawwet owl they're no bigger than my clenched fist okay. if they're female they're probably that big a male would be smaller and we play oddly enough we play their fall their you know their spring mating call but typically we're doing this in the fall when there's a lot of them migrating. Mm -hmm. And for some reason they're attracted and they come and they, they must be curious because we'll set the nets up very near this boom box. And a lot of times we'll just catch these birds down low. So they must have swooped down by the boom box yeah. to try to check it out and they get caught in the net. And they're, uh, over the years when I've, when I've taught about animals, one of the things I've tried to do is not, uh, not give animals human names or human word characteristics uh but i've told people if there's ever been a cute bird out there it's a saw wet owl okay they are, they are just the neatest little birds you know and they're fun to catch and uh they're but the, the interesting thing about them is that you know, here's got a picture of the owl right here oh, in yeah. your that's in your the one office that's when you get that's not a saw no saw that, that must be a barred owl i think it it's looks pretty like. big because the yeah. squirrels next to it yeah. yeah yeah that's a barred owl probably yeah well these 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 saw wets Nobody knows they're out there. And of course, that's another thing I like doing is sharing things mm -hmm. with people. And I tell a lot of people, if you live on the edge of the city, like your mom does, I'm pretty yeah. sure we catch owls in her backyard if we set out the boombox. I bet they I've, I've seen them. Yeah. And uh, anyway, people don't see them or hear them because they're small. They fly real quietly. They fly at night. So if you catch an owl and show some of these owls, I'll say... I didn't know they were out there, you know. Yeah, it's basically invisible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but but I've I've I had one night two years ago that I set the nets up. A friend of mine who helped me once in a while came down, but he had to work the next day, so he left at ten. And by the time he left, we had nine of them, which was a pretty good haul. The sawwet owls. Nine of these little sawwet owls that we'd taken out of the net, put a band on. We have to measure their wings. We have to weigh them. We have to put the tag on them. Turn them. And then the neatest thing we do is we have to shine a black light underneath their wings. And it'll tell us how old they are. 
How does that work? Well, these, these owls are born with a pigment in their feathers, on the, on the underwing feathers. And if you shine a black light, and sometimes I can even see it a little bit shining a flashlight, mm-hmm. but you shine a black light, it just jumps out at you. And if they're a, if they're a first-year bird, like maybe five or six or seven months old, all of the wing feathers underneath their wing will be pink. And wow. then, but then they start losing that that uh, pigment after their first year, second year, third year. And I've got a little uh, color chart that I can look at, and we can shine it, and it's almost perfect. Uh, you can tell which one's the second year bird, which one's third year, which one's fourth year. Just what well, does any scientists know what that what the the reason for that is? Do they have any idea why that's the case? <laughs> I have. If they do, I haven't read it. You know, it's it maybe yeah. it might be one of those mysteries out there, and that's one of the things I like about. Uh, uh, studying nature is there are so many mysteries we don't know all the answers oh and, yeah uh, you know and that's what makes uh makes it kind of exciting yeah with owls they're such a successful species right or a, a genus or a, yeah, what is, well they're they're a they're a group they're a family they're a group, uh, yeah, okay. yeah yeah and uh so they're yeah they're I, i'd say they're successful and there's a lot of different owls around. all one of the interesting ones that barred owl you've got the mm-hmm. picture of here in the office is a bird that out in the pacific northwest uh they're actually trying to I think they're even telling people you can go ahead and sh- I shouldn't be quoted on this, but I think go ahead and shoot barred owls. Wow, that's pretty because rare. Because they 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 because the the old growth forests are becoming less and less. Uh, the barred owls are finding the habitat is actually to their preference, and they like to eat little owls. Uh oh. And they eat the little <clears throat> uh, the little spotted owls, mm-hmm. which are uh, a protected or endangered species out there. And of course, that's the same thing with the little owls that I catch is that the big barred owls and great horns that are in the area, that's their number one predator. Wow. And so the little owls, typically a good night for them is a night where there's no moon. Because if there's a moon out and it's light out and these little ones are flying, the big ones are faster than they are, they swoop down and just, just wolf them down. Yeah. Wow. That's so weird that animals, yeah, that a lot of like, I heard that a lot of snakes eat other snakes. That's like a, oh, yeah. a big yeah. preference for yeah. larger snakes to eat yeah. smaller snakes. It just yeah. seems, seems sort of like... You th- you would think that's not the case because I don't know. You just get this in your in your head. It doesn't make sense that <laughs> well, a snake would eat a snake. You seem yeah, like, oh, but, but, uh, yeah, else. but if but on the other hand, it makes sense because they just they got to survive. You know, yeah. whatever it takes, uh, you'll do it. You know, and they know it's, how to get the snake because yeah. they're a snake. They have yeah, like the, exactly another moves. <laughs> yeah. So you say so you got into the the bird banding thing because you kind of took it over from. Right, I took director. it over from him. He helped me for a year, and after that, I, and I, it really was it really was my favorite class and favorite activity. I started doing bird Sundays every sun every fourth Sunday of the month we do bird banding and the public would come in and you could you know you could put a bird in somebody's hand. And again, adults got ex- as excited as little kids did to have a bird in their yeah, hand. Yeah, I remember the yeah. first time I, it was very scary because it's like this thing, it's so light. Yeah. And you're really scared to hurt the bird. Yeah. It's this weird thing we have to cross you have to walk the line between um, you can't be too loose, otherwise they'll get away, or right, they'll, exactly. they can also yeah. hurt you if you yeah. are too loose because yeah. they'll scratch and yeah. stuff. Yeah. But you can't be obviously you don't want to crush them. It's just perfect, like perfect firmness where you have the well, you have their head between your yep, index between these and, two fingers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Put the head between, and then then I always tell people I said, and most people don't want to squeeze down on the neck at all. And I said, well, that's your bit, con- right? that's your control spot. Yeah. You want to feel <laughs> feel the neck bone, so you've got them because the rest of your fingers. You want to go loose on their body because right. if you squeeze the rest of the body too hard, these birds, because they have such a high metabolism, mm-hmm. uh, they're breathing. I mean, they're breathing fast, fast. and their heart's going three, four hundred beats a minute when the big guy is holding them. Uh, if you squeeze them very hard, 
because they have this high metabolism, they have air sacs hanging in their body cavities. Some of them even go into their bones, which really? are hollow, so that they can get more air in and out of their bodies. Oh, so if wow. you squeeze them and they aren't getting enough air, they'll die. And I, oh, wow. I think I had that happen one time with a high school student before I was, uh, it was about my second year at Quarry mm -hmm. Hill. And I was letting these high school kids let a bird go. And the student did as you did, held in his hand, opened the hand open outside, and, and the bird just laid there. Uh, so Where? it might have had a heart attack, but it could have just as easily have, have suffocated because squeezed too hard. Yeah. It's a pretty good one, and probably who know, who knows how many thousands you've done. So. Yeah, well, well, and and yeah, and that's a that's a good good point there. I, a lot of people will question catching birds and mm -hmm. doing what we do with them, but I, I I tend to say that that the gain, you know, if you can if you can get people interested in these animals right. and get them again down the line in their life to help support you know, protecting and, and conserving and so on, uh, it's probably a, a, a good trade-off. Life is full of trade-offs, and that's, right. that's one of the examples, yeah. Does the whole, does the banding procedure, is that the idea is it's, it's to collect scientific data so you know what's, what it is and where it is? Well, yes, but matter of fact, if you go on the Bird Banding Lab's website, mm -hmm. they'll, they'll specifically say, we have... We do bird banding. We support it. One, years ago, I read that each bird that gets banded costs the government about a dollar. Mm -hmm. And I imagine it's probably quite a bit more than that. Just in terms of the number of people that are involved with processing that, they've got a big laboratory out on the, on the East Coast and so on. Uh, so the bird banding lab, especially with the newest director they've got, will say, our main goal is for research. Mm -hmm. My main goal for doing it for the you know, 35 years I've been doing it is to, is for education. And, and you know, and uh, I, I, I'll, I'll still stand by that and say it's still a valuable thing. And the, and the research is, is a part of it because if I band a thousand birds a year, that data goes into a, ba a database of maybe uh, five million birds that have been banded by all the other banders along with me. There's a lot of data that's picked up that way too. And isn't, aren't birds considered to be a species? I can't think of the, the, what they call the species that, um, it's like an indicator for a lot of environmental change. Well, exactly. You know, they use the canary in the coal mine right. type deal, and uh, and they are, yeah. Because and I, that's another thing that I would always talk about a little bit with bird banding classes is that the, one of the reasons that we study birds is to learn more about them. Because if we can watch the birds and see what's happening, if something's going wrong with the birds out there, if you aren't seeing as many uh, robins this year, if you aren't seeing as many warblers, you aren't seeing as many owls. Then you have to ask yourself the question, what's wrong? What are we doing to the habitat? Because if we're messing the habitat up for birds, chances are we're messing it up for homo sapiens right. ourse ourselves. Or basically everything. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's mm -hmm. it. Yeah. And of course, I, actually, I was going to go to a talk this last week uh, by a friend of mine. He's a, he's the the mussel expert on the Mississippi River for clams and mussels, you know, oh, stuff I thought like you that. Made, like, I just thought yeah, mussels. Yeah, I know. Like, yeah, like I know. <laughs> That's why I wanted to clear. <laughs> yeah. And 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 he his the the essence of his talk I saw a kind of little uh, tidbit about it was that he was going to say that mussels are really the canary in the coal mine in water systems. It makes sense because they're such a they're such a simple animal, right? Right, but so they're they but like they're a... they're living by filtering the water. Right. So if you're filtering crap out of the water, yeah. you're not going to do very well, you know, and if the water's not good to be able to filter stuff out of it, the mussels aren't going to do that well. What so. does he say about the water? Well, he, you know, he, he's been working hard to reintroduce and it, it's, it's always a battle because we've destroyed a lot of habitat for things like these mussels. Yeah. One of the problems is that we, when we put all the dams in rivers like the Mississippi, uh, the mussels can't 
move around. Right. And, and I don't know if you know how muscles uh, get spread around, but but when the muscle uh, releases eggs, mm-hmm. uh, they will before they release an egg, uh, and they've they've somehow they've they've made it by the female muscle gets the sperm out of the water and it creates these eggs, and then they they literally spit them out. But before they spit them out, they put some little appendages. They're little like feathery appendages come out of their shell on the rim on the edge of it, and they wiggle them to look like something that might be worth eating for a fish. Because, oh, wow. Because when the muscle spits out these these babies or these whatever, they're yeah. called glaucidia, they've got to go into the gill of a fish to develop. Weird. And certain species almost of... almost parasitic, cer- huh? Certain species of muscles have to go into certain fish. And, and then that's what allows that muscle to spread itself out. Well, if you put dams in all these rivers, then they can't go up upstream, you know, yeah. and uh, they can't, uh, you know, they can't get out of there. So a lot of it's muscles. So sensitive. Yeah, extremely sensitive. Yeah, I can remember Jeez. I used to keep some some muscles, some clams in the the big tank at Quarry Hill I I built, and and uh, I'd see these little things just wiggling. It was just really cool, and it would draw the little sunfish in there would kind of get get by them and wonder is that something to eat? And uh, yeah, that's so interesting. I never heard about that before. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's all these weird relationships in nature that. Um, Years ago, I saw something on, I think it was Discovery Channel, back when it used to have a lot of science stuff. Maybe it was, it was some science channel. Yeah. And there's a, there was a researcher who was in the in some jungle ecosystem, and he was uh, watching these ants. These ants get sugar off of some kind of like a shrub that exudes it. But there's also these beetles. And these beetles have... Um, these beetles don't get eaten by the ants. It's the only thing the ants... The ants protect the tree because the tree gives a secretion. Uh-huh. And so the ants get the secretion from the tree, and the ants protect the tree for that. So it's a, that's like, what you, what's it called? A symbiosis, right? Right, yep. And he says there's this type of relationship he found where it's like a three-way symbiosis. So the beetle um, has these rods in its neck and, it's sh- and next to its head and its abdomen that make this sound that uh, mimics the sound that the ants make. So the ants don't uh, kill the beetle, and the beetle's allowed to eat some of the ants. It's this weird thing, so they have all this, this relationship, but the, so, but the beetle also so, is able to protect... Um, it's just some... I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's this weird three-way relationship they have, and he found this through recording the sounds of it. And it's neat. It's this tiny little ecosystem, but he was talking about how... I mean, this is one thing he found. How many more of these are well, out there? I mean... When you think about it, and of course, that's the whole field of ecology that started when I was just in college way back in the early 70s, is built on the interrelationships of all the things out in the environment there. And of course, we've discovered some of those, but I bet there's, I'll bet there's thousands or millions times more we have no idea. Yeah, we may, know, and, we'll and, never know. Yeah, well, we may not, and we might keep unearthing a few of them, but... Uh, you know, it's just, uh, yeah, the, the interrelationships. And, of course, we have to also remember we're kind of part of that interrelationship right. deal. And the, the, the best area I can, I, can, I can find on that is, is what we've discovered over the last few decades, more so than ever before, that, you know, we have millions of organisms living in our gut. Mm-hmm. And they are extremely, extremely important to our whole health and well-being and we're learning that more and more and it's it 
it's interesting because we know more about the organisms in the bottom of the ocean than we do about those in our gut. My son-in-law is a, is a microbiologist at the University of Michigan, and he specializes in, in identifying those oh, kinds of things. And, in the microbiome and he, of the gut. Yeah, and he's always said, he said, we know more about what's in the bottom, in the sediment of the Mississippi River than we do what's right inside our own gut. And That's that, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I remember learning some about that stuff uh, and just being so surprised at how little science knows about that, like and how recently. It's only like the last... Like less than ten years, that even like the Mayo Clinic didn't even care about that stuff, and right. they've started caring about it. Yeah, I and mean, no one ever talks about the just. I guess there's some. There's an amazing amount of bacteria in the gut, and also it's like this uh, sort of kind of tenuous relationship that always changes. Well, and, and then, easy to then the things that things that we do to destroy those bacteria, uh, in large part through antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And we've also discovered, and Mayo was a little slow on this, as you mentioned, Mayo, yeah. but they've gotten on board with it, the need to repopulate some people's gut with bacteria. Right. And uh, I'm, I'm sure we can probably talk about this, but the, the best way they've found to do it is to take yeah, the fecal, fecal, transplant. fecal, fecal material mm -hmm. from somebody else, and, and it doesn't have to be your own. You just take it from somebody else yeah. and, uh, because that fecal material is har har harboring all kinds of stuff. Right. You, you're literally you're, you're, you're inoculating your gut with, with, with stuff that you need. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. It's a thing that seems so gross and taboo, but it's kind of like, I mean, it's just uh, it's done in a lab. It's very Well, yeah, but, but again, normal. if you just think about it, it's just it's, it's natural. I yeah. mean, we, we've got with those, I mean, it, it, to a lot of people, just knowing that they got critters living in their gut is not something they're too excited about hearing. But right. I mean, we're, we're, but it, but I mean, what it boils down to, and this is really hard for a lot of people to accept, is that we are part of that whole interrelated natural world out there. And, right. you know, some people want to put us on this pedestal up here that, that we're so, so special. But, uh, you know, we still rely on interrelationships with everything out in the environment as well as things that are, that mm -hmm. are inside us. And, uh, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of on a kick over the last few years of, I think I made a statement the other day, uh, I think there's a lot of animals out there that if we had a good way to quantify intelligence that wasn't biased towards human beings, yeah. we would find that there are animals out there that I'm going to, that are smarter than a lot of people. Yeah, one, one, the case. I made a statement the other day. I said uh, there are uh, there are more crows out there that are smarter than most people. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know it's one of my favorite birds. They're an extremely intelligent bird. Cor I don't think, Corvus calyx. Yeah, yeah, Is that right? yeah. Okay, they're yeah. in the Corvus corvidae family. Yeah, no, I don't think we have any idea how smart a crow. But I mean, there's other. I mean, you look at. People who study elephants, mm -hmm. and elephants have a great, you know, great cultural and societal mm -hmm. uh, way about them, you know, and, yeah. and we, do, you know, we, of course, we treat them terribly, but, uh, yeah. you know, I'm just convinced that the day will come that we'll hopefully realize that we're just one of many intelligent species out there. It's that thing where, yeah. um, it's the same as where, you know, people who, there's, there's, just, there's like a thing where if something has a face... There's some part of our brain that knows that that thing is uh, close to humans, and we don't want to we don't want to injure it. There's like a we have more sympathy for animals that look like humans. Yeah. So people will think nothing of like people will eat fish, but they won't eat meat. 
but it's like a fish is uh it's very similar it's just so much it's just different so different than a human's face that it there's a primitive part of our brain that doesn't recognize it as yeah, such and so yeah. it's like a thing where i mean i i remember there was one time there was a woman i worked with and she um how was she was said she was vegan and i was like and she was eating some yogurt. I'm like, well, you're eating a bunch of bacteria. And she got really mad at me for saying that. <laughs> so I was like, yeah. no, those are those are living organisms in there. But yeah. you're also, I mean, you're not destroying them necessarily if you're eating yogurt. But I just like the idea of like the thinking of things as being like every like everything's living. Like even that there's there's people who postulate that broccoli has some sort of a rudimentary intelligence. There's also stuff that my plants do sometimes where I'm like, how did you know that to do that? Yeah, yeah. Like, how did you know to go this direction? Like, it's beyond phototropism. There's stuff that where it just doesn't make sense how the plant can do something so seemingly intelligent. And it, it's, you have to think that maybe there's something because they talk about those um, those uh, fungal networks in the ground that, that send information well, between different yeah. types of plants, well, and so. Yeah. That's that's an, that's some kind of intelligence because there's there's communication going on. Yeah, well, yeah. The reality is we just don't know yeah. what's going on out there completely. And I think in in time, if humans can keep surviving all the things that we're doing that are counter indicative to that, yeah. uh, we'll learn more about stuff and we'll maybe value other living organisms more than we than we currently do. You know, uh, the thing I always talk about. It's like my favorite thing to think about is people talk a lot about uh, nanobots, the idea of having these tiny, tiny robots that can go inside your body to repair you. Right. And I, I really think that's not ever going to happen. What will happen is because you can't make a, a, a thing that small that works, that, that functions on a um, – well, I guess it's all based on this guy. You know that guy, Michu Ikako? He's, that, he's a Japanese guy, uh, American-Japanese guy who's a professor at, at – New York City University. He's like a physicist. Mm-hmm. I had this video years ago I used to watch called Exodus Earth. It was all about like leaving the planet. And he talks about how he said this, the century of um, the 21st century won't be the, the century of technology. It'd be the century of biology. Because he's saying how you can only make electronic things so small, but when you have something that's biological, like you can do all this stuff to all make te- technological stuff to allow human beings to live in space. But you can only do so much. What you're going to have to do eventually is change the biology to allow those people to be to live in space. And it, that got me thinking about how, like, you can't make something. You can make a drone, like a really small drone, right? Sure. But wouldn't it make more sense to find a way to control a beetle? Like, you can control a beetle because a beetle is it's sentient. Exactly. Yeah. So if yeah. you could find a way to control that, that would be the best drone of all. Is to have this flying beetle and that's not even going to register on. You can go fly through a metal detector because it's uh-huh. it's no metal. And like so, the idea of like a nanobot, like why would we make nanobots when we can just have some type of bacteria that we found a way to control, and you just swallow this bacteria and it goes inside you and it does what it's been told to do, which yeah. would be. I mean that would, that would be crazy. That would change everything. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. But that's like a thing where I don't know. I just like I love that idea of the the biology taking over the uh, technology. It's almost like if you look like a long lens, you can think, like going back to what you were saying about the intelligence of animals, it's almost like they're just sort of, they're going to wait this out. <laughs> they're going to like wait out as technology increases so much and eventually it won't work and all these other, these ancient systems of biology will like, well, this still works. Well, I, I think 
And I don't, I'm not sure we're that far away from that. You know, yeah. I think, you, like you said, the 21st century, because I think people are going to get to that point where they're going to say, I'm done with technology. Mm -hmm. I want to I learn real stuff. I want to study real things. I want to, you know, be with real things, you know, and, and uh, you right. know. I think you know. I, I think there's a movement that way. I, I can see yeah. that happening. I also think it's kind of a blend too, because if you think about a lot of things that are natural, they they work like a computer, mm -hmm. and they uh, they. I mean, they're not a computer, but they have a very similar. Like the the computer, the most advanced <clears throat> computers are close to human beings. So it's this thing where we're gonna have to start treating computers like we treat dogs. We have to respect them and like be be kind to these things because they're not. They basically are sentient, and there's something where, because the, the fact that they are that way makes them, I guess their vulnerability is what makes them so strong, is that right. they have like this sort of an emotional quality to them as opposed to just being like a pure tool. Yeah. So it goes from being like a tool to being something that's living. Because you think about like animals, animals have individual, it's not technically what you'd call technology, but it's like stuff that, like a crow's beak, can do something that our fingers can't do. There's always animals that have techniques of doing things that aren't that we would we take from nature to to use in technology when really that thing just that's part of its inherent biology. It's like that thing where at some point there there's gonna be a crossover where you can't tell the difference between biology and technology. They'll be they'll be seamless. Yeah. That's gonna be weird, I think. Yeah, I, I you know you know you talk I always think I, one of the things I've marveled at over the last few years too, as I think about it, is is the human heart. You know, there's nothing out there I can think of in the world of things that we can build that can last as long yeah, as the human a heart long time. and do what it does without failure. I mean, uh, you know, uh, for the most part, I mean, I'll, I'll, a lot of them ultimately do fail, but. Lot, I mean, mine's been ticking for 70 years. It's never right. stopped. I mean, it just keeps working. You can't make a car. You can't make a clock. You can't make anything that will do that. But right. yet, you know, we've got, we've evolved over millions of years that we, uh, you know, we can do stuff like that. Yeah, that stuff is really interesting how, how it's, uh, the biology, it's, well, it's been perfected for so long that it's. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I mean, technology is great, but we're, it's not, nothing, nothing will beat, uh, uh, what nature does, mm -hmm. you know, uh, nature, uh, nature rules. Yeah. <laughs> Are you going to get to see anything here? In, what's your favorite stuff to see in California when you visit? Because you visit pretty good amount. Well, we come, we spend uh, just about every Thanksgiving for about the last 15 years in San Diego. And of course, I enjoy uh, uh, just getting in the water. I enjoy swimming. We do all kinds of the stuff. The ocean, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah the, the, the real water. I, I, what I always say is I come, I come to uh, San Diego or go to other places where there's an ocean to... Uh, to get a salinity check, you know, because oh, right. my body just kind of feels like it needs to get in salt water, okay. you know, and yeah. uh, so I, I just enjoy getting in the water. And uh, do you wear and, a wetsuit? Uh, typically not. I haven't worn a wetsuit for many years. So I, I, matter of fact, I looked the other day. The water temp at La Jolla Cove was sixty six degrees, which isn't bad. Yeah. Some of the years I've come, it's been fifty eight. That gets a little cold. But we'll we'll swim the mile from the cove to the shores and uh, do some snorkeling and uh, no you know, wetsuit. No wetsuit, yeah. Do people look at you like you're a little nuts or no? Well, not. Uh, I mean, there's 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 some really hardcore swimmers that go out yeah. with without any uh, protection. Uh, you know, uh, uh, people have been swimming their their mile yeah. down there that live in San Diego. They've been swimming for years and years. So I think you can adapt to that. Yeah, yeah I guess so. I mean, I, I like the really cold. Like when we go, uh, 
up in like Yosemite area and the Alpine oh. lakes. Oh, sure. Yeah. I like those a lot. They feel, I mean, it feels so good because it's probably about 40 degrees. Yeah. You don't stay in it too long, but it's no. refreshing. Yeah. 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 It feels great. I guess the ocean to me is different because there's something about the danger of the ocean coupled with the temperature that I find <laughs> a little daunting because the lake, it's like, this is just a lake. It's right, nothing, right. It's really... There's nothing living in there either. It's like maybe yeah. a couple of fish, maybe. Well, tomorrow I might be swimming in the Pacific down in San Diego. Yeah. And when we, if we swim that mile, usually I, one of my kids goes along with me, sometimes not. But every stroke I take and I look down and I've got about 15 to 20 foot visibility, I always kind of am picturing uh, the jaws of a great white shark, <laughs> you know. And I'm thinking, well, what am I going to do, you know? But you still do it. Like you say, it's yeah. that, uh, that little sense of... Uh, of some fear uh, of being in the ocean because There's, yeah, because it's it's wild. Yeah, but there aren't great whites on San Diego, are there? I thought it's mostly. Oh yeah, in the Central they've Coast. been showing up the last few years. Wow. Yeah, I mean there haven't been. Any, I don't. I don't think there. Well, there haven't been any serious human accidents. But three years ago, I rode up one of my nature nuts, uh, and the post bulletin wouldn't even print it because. Are you one, serious? Well, they printed the nature nut, but it wouldn't put the picture in I wanted to because there was a. Uh, uh, a sea lion that they're, they're, they started to let them stay in the cove down there, and right. there's a couple hundred of them usually that got nailed by a great. Pretty sure they got nailed by a great white, and it. That's their favorite you know, food. It, what's that? I think it's their favorite food. Oh yeah, yeah, lion, and yeah. It, it it was able to get to shore, and it was still alive. But it's, I mean, it was open. I mean, it oh, was no. it was ripped to pieces, wow. and it was still alive, and uh, it was really. Uh, you know, and I'm out swimming in the same place where yeah. that shark is. You know, and uh, have you ever been bitten by anything in the ocean ever? Uh, my 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 worst uh, experience in the ocean was in the Florida Keys when I did something I shouldn't have done. I was fooling around with a little stingray, uh, not any bigger than a dinner plate. Yeah, and I was you know I was kind of trying to get it to move, and I I kind of poked at it, and it flipped its tail up at me, and it it stuck its uh, it's a stinger, it's barb in my, uh, my hand, yeah. you know, just quickly. It was in and out. Oh, God. Uh, but I, uh, that's the most painful experience. I, I was painful for a day, and then it, it swelled up, and then it got hard for a few months. And, uh, yeah, yeah they, they, they hauled me away uh, uh, going down the highway in the Florida Keys. They were taking me to a hospital somewhere, and uh, the only thing that would relieve the pain was something really hot. So we'd get on the other side of a bridge. We'd stop at a grocery store or something and we we'd uh, go to the coffee machine and just get a, a a glass of the real hot water and i'd pour that over for a while oh my yeah. god yeah. so that that's the uh that's the most painful uh animal uh is it thing. poison is that what it is well yeah it's some kind of poison of course that's the same it was, a, big, it was a bigger stingray the one that did steve Irwin and yeah. you know the guy from down in australia and, yeah uh, but he got that hit him right in the heart yeah, it hit it? him right in the heart but yeah. i mean it there i mean yeah, it, it was painful. It, it, yeah, it's nothing I would, wow. would would wish on anybody else. Of course, unfortunately, my son was along on that trip, and he was watching me, and he just kind of shook his head afterwards. He said, "Dad, what did you play with that stingray for?" You know. <laughs> oh and of course, when we go down to down to La Jolla tomorrow, there's a lot of them on the bottom. So when same I'm, kind of rays. Yeah, they're little little tiny ones, but they still have a good stinger. So yeah. we got we got to watch when we're you walking out in the feet, sand. Right? Yeah, shuffle your feet and uh, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. yeah, those things scared me the most because it's like I don't mind sharks. I mean, no. I say that. I swam yeah. with a couple of sharks, and I was like, I definitely was in... Oh, I remember the one time I saw a shark, I was just... Uh, I was so excited. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, oh my... It was just... Now, where was that at? It was in uh, the Bahamas. Yeah. And I saw that it was in this reef. It was a really active reef. We were snorkeling, and I saw it probably about 40 feet away. It was pretty good, like maybe four or five-foot shark. 
and it was moving around. I just I tried to get closer to it because I wanted to see it, and I lost it. But I saw it for a second, and I was just oh, it's like so thrilling to see uh-huh. like an animal that big. I mean, you're supposed to be scared of it, and I guess it could bite me. The chances of it killing you are pretty, pretty, pretty slim, yeah. astronomically slim. The chances of having a fun experience are, are, are much better than yeah, getting killed. Exactly. You know, and the way I look at it, you know, I I, I love to see sharks. You know, yeah. You know, we uh, have you seen one in the last oh, couple of years? I, uh, well, in San Diego, we don't see any big ones. So we don't. I don't go out in the deep water much anymore. But if you get into the the area by between the cove and the shores, there's an area where the leopard sharks will congregate in large numbers. And Those, these are sharks that are anywhere from three to four feet long. So they're not small. they're not huge. But you I've I've gone in there. You can stand in there during low tide. It'll be a, you know, the water will be up to your waist or maybe up to your chest and uh, and you can look right below you and see these leopard sharks swimming wow. between your legs and everything. They're pretty cool. But they never they don't apparently bother anybody. So yeah, because uh, I guess they eat. And I've swam, I've had fish. a few experiences when I've gone scuba diving with sharks that have been really? kind of interesting. Yeah, Where in was the that? Bah- actually in the Bahamas one time there was a there was a shark that uh, was about a nine footer that uh, the hammerhead. Yeah, it was starting to swim f- towards us. We were on a you know we were snorkeling like you said and yeah. uh, on a big reef and uh, you know you it I mean. I kind of like the rush that you get from that, but yeah. it's a, it's a little scary. So that's a big shark, nine yeah. foot. Yeah. The hammerheads typically aren't dangerous, right? I thought that's. A... I I I think they can uh, they can, they can be, be they can be tricky. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we were glad uh, that we we didn't uh, have wow. any encounter there. So I'm scared of those barracudas. We had one following us once, but on this scuba diving trip in the Bahamas, and it just kept following our group. And it's that thing where. You look at it, and it's closer every time you look well, back. It's, it's eerie, but I've, I've never. I, I've the only thing. The only thing I ever heard of a, a a friend of mine once said he had been diving, and he had had a uh, pendant yeah, on his neck. This is a it. shiny pendant. They like that. And he and he said the barracuda actually came up and hit him right at that pendant. But otherwise, I've had you know I've had him follow me for my whole dive. I, every time I turn around, I look, and it's. Right behind, and they they just stay oh, behind you. They're you know, so scary and, looking. Yeah, well, they are. They're they're formidable looking. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I've I've never I've never been. I guess I've never been afraid of one because they I've just never heard that they'll they'll do any damage. But yeah, they, I think they're pretty. They look bad, but they're not. Yeah, yeah. Bad. Well, they got real sharp teeth. Huge. And they're, they're, big. they're quick. Yeah. They're so fast. Yeah, I caught one on a fishing line one time, and they make they make the strike of a northern pike uh, seem like nothing. Oh yeah. I mean, quick and strong. Oh. But you can't eat them, right? Because don't they have? Well, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta. Yeah, they've got some chemicals that you gotta. Somehow you can, you can eat them, but I think you gotta go through some it's procedures to do it. it. Yeah, it's not worth it, yeah. right? Yeah, I just wouldn't see them swimming around anyway. I, you know, I wouldn't want to catch one of those. I and heard kill they it. they see when your mask reflect is reflective, and so that's why it's this thing where. Like you want to look at the barracuda, but you know if you do, it's going to flash reflective. And they're going to going to come closer. <laughs> yeah, because it's like something shiny. Because that's what they want. I mean, I just stuff. always have found it interesting how they just you know you'll you'll be swimming along, you'll see them, you know, you forget about them for about three four minutes, and all of a sudden you look over your shoulder, and yeah. there it is sitting right there again. You know, it's like a what do you call it? It's a torpedo. Yeah, it's just like yeah. A, a living torpedo. Oh yeah, that yeah swims they're, they're they're streamlined for sure. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So when you um do all the uh, the like as far as birding goes and stuff, you got into that and you started implementing a lot at Quarry Hill, right? Right, yeah. And did anyone like, um, do, you, do you have like any kind of like landmarks with, as far as the, uh, any stories with the birding that all? That... Well, I... Uh... So you, were telling me, you told me one a story a few 
uh, last year about how you were out there by yourself and you caught this and there's a ton of birds in your net and you had to clear them all and they you had like well a, one one time well my 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 one time I had a scout group coming after Quarry Hill closed mm-hmm. in the afternoon they were coming at 4:30 we closed at 4 and uh so I put up the nets, uh, greeted the group, took them inside. I said, we'll go out and check the nets in a few minutes. And it was starting to get a little darker because it was probably winter time. We got out there and there were 32 birds in the net. I wow. was alone. All the staff had gone home. I got a group of these young scouts there and a couple of scout leaders. And so I scrambled. That, that was a scramble. But uh, my, uh, I'm not sure if I might have told you the story, but it was, it's kind of related. When I was trying to catch owls two years ago, Yeah. I set the nets a little earlier in the season than I normally would. I didn't get any owls, but as I'm setting the nets, and it's just around dusk, this is in late September. Uh, is this I, up in Whitewater? No, this was that down at my cabin okay. where I set my new owling uh, uh, up down there. And uh, I got one net set up, and I went on, and I set them up. Uh, they're connected. They're in a form, uh, kind of perpendicular form mm-hmm. of triangle. And I'm going to set the other one up, and just as I about get that all spread, I look back to the first one, and I see something small in it. And I thought, boy, the, the chickadees are, shouldn't shouldn't be flying yet. And I go over there, and it's a bat. Oh okay. wow! It's a little brown bat, you know. And I'm uh, and they're really tiny and they're fragile. And I don't want to hurt it, but I want yeah. to get out of the net. I don't want to cut a big hole in the net to get it out. So I'm trying to get this this little brown bat out carefully, and I don't want to get bit either. Yeah, and they got they just be... little tiny teeth, but they're just seeing their chattering, sharp. and they're really sharp teeth. So <clears> I'm getting this one out, and I got it I got it free. It'd be nice if a bird animal would have three hands because it would be a lot easier. <laughs> but, I, but I got it out, and just as I'm getting it out, I look back to the other net. Now there's two bats in that net. <laughs> so I go over there, and I start getting those out. Just about got them both out. I look over at the first net. There's five in there. Five bats. Five bats. All brown bats. Little brown bats. So by the time I'm, by the time I'm done, I've taken out thirty-two of those. Thirty-two uh, bats. Yeah, thirty-two. Unfortunately, two of them, I felt a nip from them. Uh huh. I don't see any blood, but that's still not a real good deal. <laughs> but then the last thing that comes into my net, and it's now it's dark, uh, and the little brown bats aren't flying much anymore. I look over. I'm taking this net down because I don't want to catch any more of them. I'm looking over at the other net, and I see something big in there. Right. And I'm thinking, gal, could that be a big owl or, or what, what, what's in there? And I go over there, and it's a big bat. <laughs> and it's, you know, I mean, it, compared to these little brown bats, which might have a, like a six, seven-inch wingspan, right. this big brown, this bat uh, was, was huge-looking to me. <laughs> And I and I hadn't wore gloves with those little brown bats, but I said I got to have gloves for this one. So I ran down the cabin, got my gloves, and then I then I also knew that I was going to want to try to get some pictures of this thing. And I thought I'm alone. The only way I'm going to do that is I got to somehow figure out how to pin this thing down. Wait, well, so do you know I, what this is at this point? Do you know what kind of bat it is? No, I didn't. You just know it's a big bat. I know it's a big bat, yeah. and a beautiful bat too. Anyway, so I took two glasses of water, like this one I'm holding in my hand. Uh, filled them up halfway, put them on the counter in the cabin, went back with my gloves. I got the bat out, beautiful color to it. You know, it was kind of reddish and, and yellow on its wow. body. And I took it down there to the cabin, and I was able to get one wing underneath one glass of water, and then the other wing under the other one. And then I grabbed a little roll of scotch tape, and I taped down the two wing tips. Uh-huh. So then I took the water off, and I could get a picture of it. And uh, then I took and let it go, 
And then I looked it up on, on, on Google, and it said it was a hoary bat. A hoary as an H-O-A-R-Y. H-O-A-R-Y, yeah. Okay. And I, I, I'd heard about them. They're not, they're not a rare bird, but they're not a very common bat to see. They're right. found in quite a few states. But, just, and, but I measured it, too, before I let it go. 17 inches, wingtip to wingtip. shit. I mean, we're talking about a, a, wow. a big, scary-looking bat. That's, and, uh, that's like a yeah, cartoon. Yeah. But then the follow-up to that, unfortunately, was I, 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 I knew I had exposed myself to these two little ones that, that nipped me. So I thought, well, I should, uh, I should look it up. So I looked it up online. It said, well, in Minnesota, about one out of 200 bats has rabies. rabies. And I thought, well, you know, that's... That's pretty good odds, but then the, the odds of surviving a rabies bite are just about zero, okay. <laughs> one in a few million. And so then I said, well, I'll call Mother Mayo. So I called the emergency room at St. Mary's. Right. You know, and then, of course, the gal, she didn't know much about it. She ended up getting it on Google also and looking it up. But she says, you know, That's our nice. standard protocol is you got to come in and, and, and get looked at and probably get... Uh, get the series of shots that you got to get to. Uh, so I closed my nets up and I got to Mayo about one in the morning and uh, spent the next three hours there. And I got eight shots in my, my thighs and my arm before I left. I and, thought they, because uh, it used to be the stomach, right? Well, they used to give him the stomach. I had a friend that, that got, that thought, he, well, he, he stuck his hand down uh, a cow's throat to give it a pill and the cow bit him and they weren't sure. So he- A cow? Came, yeah, a cow. Cow can be well. Any, mam- any mammal can. So anyway, he ended. Up, maybe they knew the cow was found out later. I don't know. But anyway, he went through it in the gut, and he was uh, uh, he was tougher than I probably. But anyway, I had I got these eight shots and had to have a couple of follow up uh, visits just from that night with the bats. So I'm I'm a little more careful about not wanting to have bats anymore. Do they know if you have rabies after you get the shots, or they don't know? Do they? I don't think so. No, uh, at least they didn't. They didn't. No, I don't think they did any tests to try to determine that. So it's a virus, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's so yeah. strange because what is it about that that thing that means you have to get all those shots? Seems well, interesting. It's uh, and, and actually the first shot they give you is just uh, to start acting right away. It's kind of a gamma globulin or something to okay. try to start working a defense up against this until the virus can get itself built because the virus has got a or I mean, the antibiotics got to antibodies got to build itself up right. in you to uh, to be able to fight the uh, if it, if it is there. So wow, uh, yeah. So that was my. It was, I mean, it, and again, it was one of those things. It was probably a little dumb that I was getting getting bit by these bats, but I couldn't put gloves on to handle these tiny bats and be able to get them out of the net. So it was either kill the bat, yeah, you know, and put gloves on and just yank them out of the net, tear the net apart, and all that, or try to get them out. And I opted to try to get them out, and I got them all let loose. You know, uh, safely, but twenty-three uh, bats, thirty-three, thirty-three yeah. bats, <laughs> yeah, hoary yeah. bat. So, is that the biggest? Is that a carnivorous bat, the hoary bat? Uh, I suspect so, yeah. And there's, uh, like crazy. I said, it's the first time I'd so ever big. seen one or heard about one, and uh, but it was a beautiful bat. Because yeah. the biggest bats aren't carnivorous, right? Those no, fruit bats. Yeah, the fruit bats, right? Yeah, those are huge, but they're just like they're not, they're kind of like guinea yeah, pigs or yeah, something. They're not very, yeah. they're not so, mean or anything. Yeah, and vampire bats are really small too, right? They're not. Yeah, they're not as big as some of the other big ones. Yeah, yeah. yeah so. I would love to see a giant bat like that. I can't imagine what it looks like. I saw. Well, I, you were in South Africa too. We saw some at a campground we stayed at in South really? Africa once. Yeah, some great big bats. Yeah. It's wild. Down Flying there. foxes, I think, is all they call them. You know, and, flying foxes. Yeah. Ugh, yeah. So scary. Yeah. Oh, big though. I mean, they would fly through the campground. And I mean, you know, we're talking big wing beats. You know. Yeah, you can hear yeah. it. It's different than a crow because I've. Lately, I've been seeing crows flying really low. Yeah. And I, I one the other day, oh, I'm going to tell you about this. Um, 
just last week, uh, I think it was on Monday, uh, I was hiking up uh, in the hills of Burbank here by this place called the Stowe Nature Center. Okay. And I was walk. I was talking on my phone. I was just doing a dictation, recording. Um, I record a um, for every Monday. I do like a just a personal recording for sure. the Patreon page for the podcast. I was recording that. And I was walking this corner on this path, and all of a sudden above me, like maybe like an, almost within arm's reach, was a red-tailed hawk. It just jumped off this. It was perched on a piece of like a some root outcropping of a root on the bank, embankment to my left of the trail, and it just flew over my head and dived down in the valley. It was like so close. Wow. I'm pretty sure it's a red tail, right? Because they have the they have the speckled breast, right? Yeah, the, yeah, they can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was cool. I've never seen one that close before. It was right. I looked up and it was right over me. I could see everything like so. It was so close. It was crazy. Of course, that reminds me how you humiliated me so much here a couple oh, yeah. of years ago when we were going down the cabin, and I I saw a large bird, dark colored bird, and I I I, I was I was thinking it was a crow, mm-hmm. probably because my eyes weren't any better to tell any different. You said, I think that's a hawk, and we yeah. looked more closely, and it was a red tail. Yeah, it was, I don't know, it was a Cooper's hawk. Or now yeah, Cooper's, yeah, yeah, smaller Cooper's hawk. Yeah, Cooper's hawks are cool because they have that rough uh, roughness around their legs, yeah. right? Yeah, that's a cool yeah. hawk. Yeah, so. Uh, What's the most rare bird you've ever seen? Uh, most rare bird. Well, I could say I saw an ivory-billed woodpecker when we went to look for them, but I, I doubt I could, could verify that. Didn't oh, have really? any pictures of it, so probably didn't. So actually the most rare bird I've probably uh, seen is one I caught once, a bird banding out at the Isaac Walton wetland. I caught a prothonotary warbler, which is not overly rare, okay. but they're, they're unusual. Most people don't get to see a prothonotary, beautiful little yellow warbler. Just a little songbird, bird. basically? Yeah, yeah. What makes it so rare? Is it endangered? Well, no, but they're, they're, not, they're not, well, they're not a lot of them, and the habitat's decreasing for them. There's less of them now than there, there were right. five years ago, 10 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. But, uh, but they, they like to live in the river bottom areas. They like to, some of them stay in nest in the, you know, the backwaters areas of the okay. Mississippi. So they can be seen, but uh, I just never seen one, and I caught one out that Ike's wetland, so that was kind of fun. Where is that? It's in Minnesota? Uh, Isaac Walton Wetland is out uh, uh, past Mayowood, about okay. five miles. It's a 25-acre piece of ground that the Mayos donated to the the Rochester chapter of the Isaac Walton, and they turned it into a neat wetland and uh, lots of cool habitat out there. Yeah, so. the wetland habitat is one of those things. I remember learning about that probably at Quarry Hill, just about how important wetlands are. People... Yeah forget that it's like this weird it's not a lake it's not it's this in-between well, area again it's again it's it's a really valuable part of all the interrelationships of things and especially valuable for water because wetlands are a great sponge for for cleaning water mm-hmm. and uh you know and so on and we've of course in minnesota we've destroyed uh you know, 99% of our wetlands for the 99%? most part. 99%? Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Just I mean, through development? Well, yeah. Well, a lot of it was through agriculture. I mean, okay, you know, yeah. there are a lot of areas to the west of uh, Rochester where you grew up and where I've lived my whole life that uh, that used to really be wetlands, and they've drained yeah. them. They've drained them because they can plow up those fields. They were pretty rich soils, and they could, right. uh, you know, and I mean, whenever I'm traveling around the countryside, I just look at it, and I can't help but think, what did this look like? 200 years ago. Oh, know, it must have been incredible. You know, prairies and forests and wetlands, and they're all yeah. pretty much gone. And uh, uh, someday yeah. we'll, we'll, hopefully someday we'll, uh, before it's too late, we'll learn that we've got to, uh, we've got to have a better uh, relationship out there. Yeah. There's a cool book. I, I never finished it, but it's a, a book uh, called The World Without People. And this guy writes all about how 
how different things would change if people just suddenly just went away. It'd be really interesting, you know, and how what stuff would deteriorate and how fast it would, and uh-huh. how and how certain places we know, even even places that have been agri- been um, used for agriculture for hundreds of years, how quickly they would turn back into being like just a forest, like in like just years. A lot of the stuff he says it would just it would take. It's remarkable how fast everything would get uh, just deteriorate and become. Yeah. It was well, a little crack. That's kind of related to the a lot of those, a lot of times you hear slogans from people who are who have their their heads in the right place. I think you know, and they they talk about I want to save the earth. I want to do something to save the earth. The reality is, we as humans don't need to save the earth. Yeah, we need to make the earth better for. Uh, our descendants to have a good life because the earth is going to survive us. There's no question in my mind about that. The earth's going to be here a lot longer than we are, and and mm-hmm. it's just really a question of how how much of a what kind of quality of life we want to have and we want to have for future generations. And and you know, uh, as soon as we can realize that, we might be able to to do better. Yeah, it's definitely a matter of. Uh becoming more comfortable with nature and understanding that it's... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. There's also like a thing, I think, there's like a weird kind of coefficient between understanding that nature is, like, it does want to kill you, but also that you can you can kill nature too. It's like that thing where people... I always think about when people are scared of coyotes. Mm-hmm. And my friend was like, oh, you can... They're just tiny dogs. Like, what, what are they going to do to you? You just if if a coyote wanted to bite you, just kick it and it would go away. It's like but we just forget how, like we didn't get here by accident. So like, nature can't hurt us, but we can also do ten times more damage to the thing that we're scared of than that it can do to us. And so it doesn't make sense to yeah. do anything but foster it as opposed to be like to cordon yourself off and right. separate yourself from it because. But remember, nature bats last. Yeah, <laughs> it's one of my favorite little yeah. uh, uh, signature lines on, a, on an email I got one time. Nature bats last. It's true. You know, I mean, and the reality is, nature. You know, I mean, I, I personally believe we live by the the rules and principles and laws of nature, and, and nature set those rules over eons of time before we were ever around here, mm-hmm. and those rules still still pervade uh, what's happening out there, and uh, and and you know. The sooner we learn that we've got to fit in with those rules, the better off it'll be for our species. Yeah. Yeah, because you can't really just change things. You can try, but it's always like it's so funny. Like when you see how much work goes into something, and like in one night, oh, the river decided to go that way. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, just look at all the natural disasters we've seen over the last ten, fifteen, twenty years. You know, and and we can't control that. Yeah. I mean, that that's nature batting last. That's mm-hmm. nature showing. I'm in charge, you know. You guys better figure out how you're going to survive with me because, uh, you know, if you if you keep trying to fight me, you're going to lose the game. Yeah. Flat out. It's going to nature yeah. last. Yeah. Can people see your column uh, online? Nature Nut? Yeah, if they if they go on uh, to postbulletin.com, yeah, mm-hmm. they'll they'll see Nature Nut there. I think they can still read uh, free uh, uh, free columns out of that, uh, you know, like 7 a month or something. So Do you think not... you'll ever put together like a like a compendium of them or write some sort of a book like an essay well, collection? Well, maybe? I've had some people suggest that I do that and I guess I I'm, I'm just not sure. I mean, I enjoy doing what I'm doing, just right. being able to write something and to try to educate people a little more and get people excited to enjoy nature. And I'm not sure as I have to do 
you know, as, as a book would, would enhance what I'm doing that much. But, yeah, people have talked about that, yeah. It might be nice. It just makes it that much more accessible to yeah, people. Yeah, true, true, yeah. yeah. Posterity. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm on, number, I'm on column number 423 right now, and I'm trying not to repeat, so it's a little hard to find uh, topics. Uh, I bet. Yeah, so, uh, but it's still fun. Yeah. Do you remember what the first one you wrote was? Yeah, it was on, uh, I was down, my, I just gotten my cabin down the river and I was down there for the opening night of, of duck hunting. Mm-hmm. I've never been a duck hunter. I've done a little bit of hunting in the past, but I don't hunt anymore. I'm not necessarily anti-hunting, but I want us to think about a lot of things that are related to hunting. But but this was, uh, uh, you know, I, my cabin is where a lot of guys uh, and gals go out duck hunting. And just to see... Uh, everything that went into it. Some of these people would come down and they'd launch their boats, little tiny boats, uh, 10 o'clock at night and go out and sleep in them overnight just so they could have a place out on the water. And uh, so that was my first article, Ducks on the Water. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So uh, that's great. Well, thanks so much, Greg. Yeah. This has been fun. I hope. I appreciate uh, it. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk more about it because I'm sure there's about a thousand things you could have talked about. We just didn't get to it. Yeah. 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 Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. (laughs) 